Bible. Uh, we've been in a seven-week series on what's commonly called the words of Christ from the cross, um, which is a series of seven phrases or ideas or concepts that Jesus communicates while he's in that most vulnerable place, while he's on the cross, uh, that he prays, he speaks, that's heard, that's recorded. So we're pausing each week to reflect upon the words or the phrases of Jesus. Today we'll be taking a look at the word of affection or relationship, however you want to think about it. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work looking at what God has to speak to us this morning. So John chapter 19, verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of God. Uh, Father, right now we come to you and we ask you that you would open our hearts to you, to the words that you have to speak to us. Um, We also want to pray, Father, just as we're in this season of Lent, of considering and thinking and prayerfully reflecting upon what this is all about, what it meant for you to come into this world, to suffer, to take upon human form, ultimately to die, and then to come out the other end of death through resurrection, and what it means to follow you in that life. So God, we ask you right now that you would just open our hearts, allow them to be full and learn and grow, and more importantly than anything, God, to be transformed. Um, We also want to pray for people in our life right now, people that maybe are neighbors, our Uh, roommates, family members, people that are workmates that maybe are far from you, might have questions, or maybe they don't even know that they have a need for you, but God, you have placed them in proximity of our lives. Uh, I pray, God, that you would give us courage, Uh, begin to show us uh, names and images and faces of people that you love, that you, because you love them so much, you placed us right in their life. Uh, Give us the courage that we need, God, to maybe invite people. And God, finally, we just pray for miracles, that you would break through uh, people's hardness or skepticisms or cynicism, and God, bring them to a place where they would come to meet uh, you, Jesus, as their Savior. Uh, So God, we pray for an incredible move of your Spirit. Uh, We pray, God, that you would awaken our hearts in fresh, new, creative ways to participate, to be a part of what you're doing in this earth, but even specifically on the Central Coast. So God, thank you. Uh, for us being able to have an opportunity to engage with your presence here this morning to bring, bring about and create new life in us. So we commit this time in your hands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? So we've been in a series looking at a variety of different words of what Jesus has been doing, what he's been speaking. Next slide, we'll take a look at some of the words that we have looked at. What we will be looking at is, first week, we look at the word of forgiveness. If you were not here, I would recommend definitely going back and checking out the podcast. Um, last week, we looked at a word of hope. Uh, to, today, we'll be looking at, again, I, kinda, I couldn't decide of calling it a word of affection or word of relationship, so which is it? Yes, the answer is yes, both, um, because kind of the two go hand in hand, because it really is a word about re, uh, relationship, but also a sense of God, God actually loves, he cares, and that he steps in and does something about the needs of other people, and then the following weeks, as you can see, will kind of play out as it says accordingly. Uh, what I want to do this morning is we kind of look at the 
passage is I want to think about the context of what Jesus is describing with regard to this word that has to do with reframing would be the best way I would think about it, the whole landscape of what relationships are all about. Now, I realize for some of us, uh, relationships may be a strange topic to even talk about because we kind of have within the wake of our lives or our landscape is riddled with you know, high body count, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain and sorrow and difficulty that we've gone through, uh, maybe through divorce or through strained family relationship or a child that's kind of gone away or kind of pushed you out or maybe a parent that's just kind of abandoned you or you kind of feel that deep ache uh, when we start talking about the subject matter of relationship. Um, one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me about relationships, on the one hand, they can bring us the greatest joy. I mean, if you think about some of the greatest memories, um, at least for me, I know some of the greatest memories I've had in life involve people and food, right? In, you know, may, maybe in the order of food and then people, but you get the idea. Um, people and food, food, people, kind of something to do with that is, are some of the greatest memories. Um, but I could also say, probably along with you as well, some of the greatest Anguish, pain, and hardships I've also experienced uh, have to do with people. Um, have to do with people. So this idea of relationships, even being something that Jesus addresses, uh, should be something that causes us to step back and look at kind of the priority of what's on God's heart. Um, now again, he's about to die. He knows this. So what he's doing is bringing to the forefront um, important topics and subject matter that he realizes needs to be unpacked and communicated to those that are in proximity to him. In other words, you can put it this way. These are the most important things that Jesus has to say prior to his, his death. Uh, they're really important. They're high in, in on the level of priority for, for Jesus. Um, again, if we are claiming to be followers of Jesus, uh, we have to kind of wrestle with this question. It says, so if I, if I were to ask, how important, how prioritized are relationships to you? If you're like, I don't really care about relationships. I, myself, and myself are the main you know, formation that makes up the landscape of my life. Then at some point, you'd have to look and say that that's a little bit of a contradiction to what it means to follow Jesus. Because apparently to Jesus, relationships are very high value, high priority. And those who follow Jesus should also synchronize their lives with the same priorities of Jesus. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, by the way. We'll get more into this in just a moment. Uh, it means to prioritize the very things that are in the heart of God uh, become the things that, that we prioritize. Uh, so with that being said, um, I want to just basically take a look at the text, and from that text we'll kind of derive uh, a variety of ideas and concepts which we'll take a look at. Next slide, we'll take a look at the three things that we kind of uh, identify, three different movements within the passage that we just read. Maybe identify that. If not, um, I just kind of want to describe them as this way. Number one, we'll take a look at the devotion of the disciples. I think the characters that John, who's the author of this, describes for us, the narrator of this, points out. We'll look at those in a moment. Uh, we'll look at, then move into the reorientation of family relationships by Jesus, because this is what Jesus does. He basically brings out the bulldozer and says, we're going to completely terraform everything. We're going to reshape the entire landscape of who you think is your mother, your brother, your whatever. Like, whatever ideas you have in your mind up to this point, um, they're going to be totally planted and replanted with something foundationally brand new. That's what Jesus is uh, doing. 
Thirdly, we're going to take a look at the response of the disciples, which can just be summarized in one simple sentence. So with that, let's jump in and take a look at the devotion of the disciples. Um, again, as John writes the story, he wants us to take note of the characters. And so this is one of the things that as you read your Bible, it's always really good to just kind of pause and step back and just look at the, the landscape, like what is being created for us in the literature that's being described for us. So for example, listen to it again. It says, and then standing at the cross... Of Jesus were his mother, uh, what was her name, by the way? And Mary, okay, right, just hold on to that. Uh, His uh, mother's sister, um, and then it says Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene, and then Jesus saw uh, his mother and then the disciple. So how many Marys there, just so that we're on track? Three Marys, right? A lot of Marys, kind of hard to keep track of them all, but three Marys, another lady, which is Mary's uh, sister, and then also we're told a disciple, which uh, it's interesting the way he describes himself. He says, and John is obviously the one who's authoring this, he's writing this, but listen listen to how he describes himself, as the disciple who is loved by Jesus. Just pause and think about that for a moment. Um, I don't know how you think about yourself, what phrases or language you would use to describe yourself. You might say, you know, fill in the blank of your name. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the douchebag that Jesus doesn't like. I'm a horrible human being, or I'm a pervert, or I'm an alcoholic. Sorry, I just said that. I didn't mean that. But the, if, if that was offensive. But the point that I would make, sorry, sometimes, sometimes I'm still in process and Jesus is healing me. But the point that I would make is this. The point that I would make is this. I don't know how you describe yourself or how you envision your, your placement before God. I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, think about yourself in light of the way John chooses language to define himself. The one whom Jesus loves. What does it take to bring a person to that place? What type of profound suffering or hardship or strain or relational landscape that you have to kind of work through in order to get to the place of realizing, you know what, I am loved, I'm loved by by Jesus. I'm, I'm flawed, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm not where I want to be on this journey, but even in the midst of where I'm not, I'm still, I'm still loved by him. Amen. Just think about that. I mean, that's, that's a profound revelation, the way that John kind of describes it about himself. I mean, my hope would be, I think that's kind of a pathway to health of, of how we see ourselves in light of this God that, that loves us. He loves us. John recognized that. He's able to write that. He's able to actually identify himself in that context and describe it as, as such. Uh, but then we're also told that Mary, uh, three Marys that are there, um, that are all part of this kind of uh, constructive relationship that are right there at the foot of the cross with Jesus. Now, Jesus, obviously, he's uh, being crucified. So which means that Jesus is a political prisoner. He's done something to disrupt the peace of Rome, and therefore he's paying the ultimate price for that. And again, we've been pointing out this for the past couple of weeks, that um, Crucifixion is not just a form of execution. It's, it's, a, it's a form of public humiliation followed by torment and pain and others coming in and mocking and mockery and basically putting you down, of exploitation, of basically putting you and presenting you before others in the ultimate state of weakness um, and then ultimately watching you suffer and die over this prolonged period of time. It was not uncommon for Roman prisoners who were executed this way to take days before they died. Days. Imagine days on a cross suffering to the point of death. Now, Jesus, obviously, along with his 
uh, the others that were being executed, they were being executed just prior to Passover. Uh, the Jews did not want him, anybody on the cross during, so it's a religious season, right? It doesn't look good, us you know, ex- being responsible for killing other people, so let's, let's remove the, the, the dead bodies at that particular point. So they went to break the legs of the others. Uh, Jesus had already been dead, um, which is kind of a shocking thing because it says that he actually gave up his spirit. Uh, but the point that I would make is this, is that this is all about public Prolonged public humiliation um, on the dime of Rome. So, where is disciples? Right there. Or at least these ones. There's, there's a whole lot of other disciples that were not here. For example, Peter's absent. He's not there. Where's Peter? Peter ran. Um, this story is not so much about Peter, but it's about those that were actually there. But again, I want you to just think about this. So, the disciples, they demonstrate this incredible loyalty to Jesus in the midst of this context. And what I think this does, it tells us something a little bit about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it looks like to actually be a follower of Jesus. I think there's three things that we can just look at real briefly in the text. Number one, uh, we see that disciples are those that behold Jesus. They're right there looking at Jesus. They're in proximity to Jesus. Uh, His presence is what they long for. Uh, And so whatever the cost is, they're willing to incur the cost upon themselves in order to be right where Jesus is at. Uh, Sometimes the way that we approach um, following Jesus or this idea of Christianity, we'll say things along the lines of, you know, I want Jesus to be with me and be where I'm at, and so we are looking for a God that will follow us, that will trail us wherever it is that we go. But really, discipleship is about trying to figure out wherever it is that God is at and saying, I want to be there. I'm going to be where God's at. You want to be where God's at? You want to be in the heart of where God is, God is, God's heart is beating? Uh, figure out uh, where and what God is up to, and then jump on board with that with all your energy. You will discover, you'll find God's presence in those moments. And it's exactly what we see with Jesus here uh, and these other disciples, is that they wanted to be where Jesus was at. Now again, if you were to pause and step back and think about this a little bit, what does this mean to be following Jesus, to put yourself there in a place where Jesus is being executed as an enemy of the state? Does that put them at risk? totally puts them at risk. I mean, now, do you think they were thinking about this? Maybe. But my guess would be, and another question that I would ask is, is why were they there? Were they forced to be there? Did Jesus guilt and shame them to be in there? Look, I'm going to die. If you abandon me, I'm not going to be really happy with you. That's not at all. Like, they weren't guilt and shamed into being there. Um, they definitely weren't there because it was, it was a promotion in their, you know, Persona, like they're, they're not going to score any points with Rome. They're not going to get any form of advancement. Um, everything about them being there uh, is very costly for them. Do you understand this? So why? Why were they there? They loved him. They loved Jesus. You know that's what love does, right? Love, love says, I love you so much. I love this person so much. I love this, who they are so much, I will be there with them even in the midst of great suffering or pain or loss or grief. This is kind of what it means when Paul would describe uh, experiencing the sufferings of Christ. That's what, that's what love is. Love says it doesn't matter what type of pain it might bring me or shame that will be brought upon me because of this or how I might be viewed as being a horrible human being, or a bad individual, or a bigot, or however you want to describe it. However culture at large today says, oh, you follow Jesus, because it's kind of an interesting thing. Culturally, Christianity, there was a time when I first became a Christian, it was like mid-80s, early 80s, um, where, you know, Christian kind of always had sort of this mentality, like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're just, you're kind of weird. 
kind of weird, right? And we've, we've all kind of met Christians like that. Like, Christians are kind of weird, the stuff that they do. But I think in today's culture, it's not just that you're weird. It's that you're, you're despised. There's something about Christians, especially in certain parts, maybe California, of America. Uh, it's not just that you're just weird. It's that you're a bigot. You're, you're one of them. You're a bigot. You're a horrible human being. I can't believe you follow this or think this or act this. But the point that I would make is this. Is it costly to follow Jesus? It's always costly to follow Jesus. It's always. Now, sometimes that comes as a surprise, as a shocker. Like, I thought following Jesus was going to make my life even better. Now, actually, following Jesus might make your life even more difficult. More difficult in, in the interim, in the immediate. But this is what we see with them, is that they're beholding Jesus. They're looking to Jesus, watching Jesus in the midst of this whole horrible situation. The second thing that we see is that they believe in to be Savior. So why are they devoted to him? Because truly at the very core of their being, it's not that they just see Jesus as a good man or as a life coach or as a nice, kindly person. Like you would not be willing to put your own life and your family in jeopardy for just a good guy. They truly believe him to possess some means, some ability, some power, some agency with God to where he will actually rescue them and save them. So they truly believe in him to be Savior. And then thirdly, obeying what they said. So these three things, I think, kind of uh, shape what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. They behold Jesus, looking at him, looking to him. They believe him to truly be Savior. And ultimately, they live in obedience to him. This is why Jesus would at one point even say, look, if you love me, then the way that you express or demonstrate your love is by obeying me, doing exactly as I say. So with that being said, I want to move on into the very next thing as we begin to think about not only the devotion of the disciples, um, but as we move to the next one, as we begin to take a look at the reorientation of family relationships by Jesus. Because again, as I already mentioned, what Jesus is doing is nothing short of groundbreaking. He's radically upsetting the status quo of how human beings would begin to think about not only the idea of family, but really the idea of belonging, because that's kind of what family is. So if you go back, you know, thousands of years, and you would begin to think uh, being a part of the family was not just simply, you know, who's my bloodline, it's, it's who do I belong? Who are my people? Does, does that make sense? Uh, who are those to whom I can call home that I know they will look after me, that they will protect me, they will be part of my family line, um, this is kind of the bigger idea that's at play here, that Jesus is basically reshaping the entirety of how one would actually think about family makeup. Listen to what he goes on to say. He says, woman, he's obviously referring to Mary as mom, uh, he says, behold, your son. Um, he's referring to John, John the beloved, who describes himself as the one whom Jesus loves. And then he says to the disciple, John, behold, your mother. Now, again, just on a literalistic type of a perspective, if you're just simply looking from a literal perspective, this makes no sense. Because John is not the son of Mary, and Mary is certainly not the mother of John. So the question is, what's, what's actually happening here? What's taking place? Again, like I already mentioned, Jesus is literally reshaping how we think about not only family, but place of belonging. And not only that, even you can carry it even further in terms of, of responsibility. There's, there's a word we love to hate, right? Responsibility. Like, who are we responsible to and responsible for? And what does that look like? How do we live in responsibly to these relationships that Jesus now invites us into? Um, one other passage that would be maybe helpful for us to really kind of understand a little bit of different perspective of this, or maybe a little bit further perspective of this, is Mark chapter 3, verse 31. It says this, uh, 
when Jesus' mother and his brothers, they came, uh, and they were standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called to him. And then the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And then he answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So again, if you've ever read Jesus and you're like, he's a little bit confusing, uh, that's, that's kind of common because I'm certain the people in that day were probably hearing this and thinking, what? How, how's that possible? What Jesus is doing is beginning to lay the groundworks of a different family, a new family, new relationship that is basically being forged around himself. What Jesus is doing is he's recreating, reorienting an entire understanding, remapping the framework of what we would call family in an entirely different context around himself. Now, why is that significant? Well, two things I would say. Number one is that it's significant because, especially in the context of the first century, um, but really even throughout all history, if you were to ask the bigger question, who is in, who's out, who's accepted, who's rejected, who's privileged, who is uh, you know, thrown out to under the bus? And, and the way that you answer that is going to be reflective of your values um, and certain other you know, cultural grid by which you think about it. So, for example, if you were to go back, you know, 2,000 years ago in Egypt, if you belonged to the king of Egypt or the king of whatever empire that you choose, um, your, your bloodline, in other words, if you share the bloodline of whatever said king is in control, then, then you have privilege. Let's say, for example, if the king who is in control, and you share the bloodline of him, and let's say, for example, he gets you know, killed or his fate is fallen by the sword by another superior kingdom, um, just because you share the bloodline, you will also share in his loss. Even like, I didn't do anything wrong. Like, it doesn't matter. You have, you have his blood in your veins, therefore you are the enemy, therefore you must die. Um, so the idea of who's in, who's out, pertaining to blood is, is not new. It's always been around. Now, in our culture, if you were to ask the bigger question, who's in, who's out, um, and how you answer is going to be reflective of cultural values. So, for example, if you've got a YouTube channel with a million subscribers, a million followers, you're definitely in. You're definitely in. If you are a YouTube, YouTuber and you only have like 18 subscribers, you're definitely not in, all right? Um, and, and this is kind of how our culture works. If you are an influencer, you are in. If you're good looking, you are in. If you've got a lot of money, you are in. If you have several cars, you are in. If you drive a Tesla, you are in. If you want, I mean, you can fill in the blank however it is that you want to shape it up. But the point that I would make is this. It just represents cultural values. To the heart of God, it doesn't, doesn't matter. And what we do is we judge based upon those certain cultural values. Or you got that car, or you have that many followers, or you have this going for you, or you have this particular group of people that you're associated with or connected with, or you have this particular skin color, or whatever the case is, then we say, I want to be part of that, because by being part of that or associated with that, then I'm in the in crowd. I'm somebody. But do you understand what Jesus just did here? He completely undermined all that. And he basically said, it's not, has anything to do with blood, skin color, social economic scale, none of this. He completely blew that whole spectrum up and he says, those who belong to the Father are the ones that do his will. Those who value him as king. Do you understand how freeing and liberating this is? Do you realize that 
this is a word that can feed life into your soul, even in today's world, as it did even 2,000 years ago, if you believe it. It can actually liberate you from seeking out a sense of belonging from all of these other subgroups and subcategories that are here today and gone tomorrow, that are built upon flimsy value system that's all time-stamped, that's dated, that has limited mileage. Do you realize how freeing this is to all of us? Because it means that no matter who you are, no matter how broken you may be, no matter how unable you might even be able to operate, whether or not you have a, a medical condition, whether or not you have a mental condition, no matter what, Jesus invites us to just trust him and to obey him. And therefore, he says, you belong to me now. You're given life. You have a place. You have a family. You have a place of belonging. That's incredible to recognize this. And this is what Jesus is basically saying. So he literally reorients the entire construct of family relationship all around himself. Now, what this does next is it begins to move into kind of how we're to respond to this. So the next slide is we begin to think about the response of the disciples. Because what it does, and I would even go so far as to say that throughout the rest of the New Testament, what you have are the New Testament writers kind of playing off of this, riffing off of this, like this initial note, all right? The rest of it is just, you know, Peter up there kind of doing his little guitar solo. Here's what it looks like to live according to the family of God. Here's Paul doing his guitar solo, trying to figure out, here's what it looks like to live according to the family of God. And the rest of it is all of this concept of, okay, if God is Father, and if these other people that I have nothing shared in commonality with them, no blood, same blood type, no family lineage, no same ethnicity, no same skin color, uh, no same interest, but they're my sibling, then it raises the question, how do, I, how do we treat each other? And this is what the rest of the New Testament really is all about. Like, in fact, we've been in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, and we kind of paused now to kind of spend some time over the past seven weeks or the next seven weeks looking at these ideas, but we're then going to get back into the book of Corinthians. And really, the book of Corinthians is all about this. This is a group of people that had lost the plot line, and they began to drift, and they began to fragment. So you had these groups of people that were like, I belong to Paul, and Paul's amazing, and there's others like, oh, we don't really like Paul, but we do like this guy named Apollos. He's a really cool hip guy. And others are like, I don't really like Apollos, or I don't really like Paul. We're really into Peter. And then you have all of these different fragmentation that's happening within the early church, and then you have people that are suing each other in the very church. You have another dude who's actually sleeping with his mother-in-law. It's really bad. You have people that are not understanding what it means to love, and the climactic pivot of the entire book is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a.k.a. the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. In other words, love is other-centered. Love is giving, self-giving commitment to the other. Love is, love is the exact opposite of a black hole that sucks in the life of other people, feeds itself. It's like vampire. It feeds off of the life of other people in order to keep itself perpetuating and going. Love is the exact opposite. Love allows others to feed off of it in order they, for them to live that self-giving love. So we see that Jesus is basically doing here He's reconstructing the entire family around himself. And here's what we see. Is now we see the response of the, the, the disciples. Uh, let's do it again. John chapter 19, verse 27, second little sec, uh, segment of that. It says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Again, some of those little details that would, would have been easy to just kind of glance over. But again, for whatever reason, John wants us to know this. 
you know, here's, here's you know, the, the cacophony of uh, disciples that are there around the foot of Jesus. They're devoted to Jesus no matter what's going on. Then you have Jesus communicating to them kind of this, you know, uh, woman, here's your son and son, here's your mother. Um, and then you have kind of the conclusion. There's like a little segment where he says, look, and, and then they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do. That, that's what it means to follow Jesus to orient our lives in a new way. Now, I think one of the greatest objections to this is that many of us, I think all of us, I think probably we look at, we just say, in theory, it sounds amazing. I mean, in writing, in red, right, in black and white and red, it looks incredible. But in real life, in the world in which I live, that's where it gets really hard. And that's where it's easy to get kind of fidgety or to live in denial of the reality of the type of pain and trauma that relationships can cause. And what ends up happening in those moments, it, it becomes very convenient for us to pick and choose, a cherry pick is what they call it, to pick and choose what aspects of Jesus I want and what aspects I'm just going to kind of conveniently pull away from and quietly ditch out the back. But a disciple is one that's willing to listen to even the hard truths and to know that for whatever reason Jesus invites us into these things, it will without question be costly. Just, just know that. How costly would it have been for John to have now for the rest of his life taking um, care of Jesus' mother? I mean, would it have cost financially? Probably. He's got, someone's got to pay for her food and room and board and uh, he probably had to create like a room in his house. And again, there's all sorts of debate as to whether or not John had a wife. And so his wife obviously had to accommodate to that as well. And if he had kids, you'd imagine now Jesus' mom. So I'm just trying to create a picture here that no matter what way you slice it, it would have been costly to John. But again, he just tells us, and from that hour, that disciple took Mary into his own home. Why? Because that's what discipleship is. We incur the cost, the, the, the pain, as, as hard as it is. Not, not as if somehow we can figure out the solutions on our own, but that there's another power source that's available to us. And this is where I want to pause real quick and just say that we've been kind of describing this and going into this over the past several weeks, is that there's a, there's a major dis- distinction between uh, good advice and good news. Good advice is, hey, um, do the best you can, to love everybody else and forgive everybody else and to work at building relationships. That's great advice. Um, But if you've ever had to face complicated, messy, traumatic, abusive, painful relationships, jealousy, hurt, betrayal, I mean, this, this is where we are oftentimes faced with this reality of like, I don't know. I don't know if I can step into that. So it becomes an objection. But at the end of the day, it becomes, I think, also one of those moments where, like many of the people in the stories of Jesus, where it describes things along the nature of Jesus says, okay, stretch out your hand. Right? I think of one guy, he's, he's paralyzed. So his, his, his hand, we're told, was incapable of actually being stretched out. So Jesus shows up, he's like, stretch out your hand. Like, you, you can't stretch out your hand. It's broken. It's messed up. But he does. And it's in the act of doing that that Jesus heals him. Or, for example, another one. He says, pick up your bed and walk. 
Well, the guy's paralyzed. He, a, he won't even be able to stand up, let alone pick up a bed and walk. He just, that's an impossibility. But this is where what we would describe as a life of trust, loyalty, faith, of saying, I don't know how I'm going to do this, God. I don't know how this will be possible. But if you're inviting me to do this, I'll step out of the boat and onto the water, even though that's an impossibility. And as you're in the act of doing that, Jesus gives everything that's needed in that moment. And in the moments that follow that moment, to continue on this trajectory towards obedience. And throughout the rest of the New Testament, here's just a couple selections or examples of this, and I'll wrap this up. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, uh, Paul would at one point say, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another by showing honor. Um, I've got to pause real quick and just think about the word love, because many of our modern-day assumptions about what love is, we think about love really exclusively in the context of, of a good emotion, of a, you feel really good, you feel love, there's this kind of tingly sensation you got throughout your body, like, I feel love. Um, is that type of definition what he's inviting us into here? No, not at all. That's, that's not what love is from a biblical perspective. That may be how we think about love in our modern context, but that's not how the Bible writers would have thought about love. Love would have been far more robust, less hollow, far more like tangible. Love would have been viewed more along the lines of being an action or an activity. Uh, God doing something. So, for example, it says that God so loved the world that he what? Had warm, tingly feelings all over. No, actually, God so loved the world that he does something. He gives his son. That's what love is. Love is self-giving of an agent to your good. So when Paul says, for example, love one another, is he saying, have warm feelings about the person sitting next to you? Not at all. He is saying, however, give yourself to each other. What if, what if, this might come as a shock for some of us, what if the person sitting right next to you right now might be God's greatest gift to you to teach you what it means to be like Jesus? What if, what if they're not just a pest or an annoyance or a problem to be eradicated, or just a bother to be ignored? What if they are actually God's gift to you to become shaped into the person of Jesus? What if? And what if we begin to follow what Jesus invites us into, which is this new family, to take his word at face value and to live into it? So one of the reasons why James would later write this, he says in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says they have faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or la- and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things that they need for their body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, uh, if it does not have works, is dead. Therefore, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The point that I think James is identifying is that it's possible to just verbally communicate, I believe in God, but that belief, that verbalization doesn't really do anything. It doesn't move you to an action. And this is what I think James is saying, is that that's just a verbal profession. It's hollow, in other words. True love looks like actually diving into each other's lives, bearing each other's burdens. And I want to finish with this final thought and wrap it up with this concluding idea. That as we look at really the stories that we just read here, um, I think to, in, to summarize it, we can think about the concept of devotion 
or love or relationships in the context of devotion, that this is what family is. Devotion to Jesus, first and foremost, and then as it moves from devotion to Jesus and his ways, it becomes devotion even in the midst of suffering because that's what it looks like to truly love someone else. It means I'm willing to suffer on your behalf so that you can then be leveraged to having life. I'm willing to pay the price. I'm willing to absorb whatever difficulty that might be part of this relational construct so that you can benefit from this. And then lastly, um, it's also a devotion to those that have nothing in common with you whatsoever. Again, if, in our modern context, we talk about you know, building community, but oftentimes the community that we build is really with people that look like us, act like us, listen to the same music that we listen to, binge watch the same shows that we binge watch. And at the end of the day, that's really not family. That's, just, that's, just, that's me picking and choosing who, I, who I'm choosing to spend my time with and then receive time from them. That's it. And again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that per se. If that's the only source by which you are diving into, then what I think it is in the long run is you're keeping yourself beyond the actual mechanisms that God uses in our lives to make us like himself. So I want to finish with this thought that really the main hero of the story is not these three Marys and Mary's sister and this guy, John. They were really not the main heroes of the story, though I think it's written in such a way to kind of point out they did, they, they did good, but really the main hero of the story is Jesus because what we see is Jesus in the midst, in the throes of suffering, taking upon himself a guilt and a shame and a destruction and a brokenness that we ourselves deserve so that we then can go free. And on top of that, we see Jesus doing this for people that are other completely other than him, completely different than him. He's holy, we're not, we're soiled. He's guiltless, we're full of guilt. He's good, we're not so good. He steps into this world and he associates with people that are nothing like him, though they bear his image. They've drifted so far from that, and yet we see the love of God. So what I would suggest is that as we think about this, it's easy if we're just... Treating this text as nothing more than good advice, it would be easy for us to do one of two things with this text. To walk away and be like, you, you know, you measure yourself up according to it, be like, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Not all my friends are not doing very good. So you become critical and judgmental of them. So you get prideful. That's not healthy. It's not good. Or you listen to this and you hear it and you think, oh my gosh, this is, uh, there's so much being expected of me. I can't do this. You don't even understand the type of trauma or the brokenness or the abuse or the hardship that I've come from. And to be expected to somehow love or to build relationships with people that are so hurtful and toxic to me. And again, there's all sorts of layers to this to talk about, which I just don't have time to kind of nuance. But the point that I would make is this. The big picture sketch of this is that Jesus is inviting us into a different relational landscape. And as broken, as dysfunctional as it may be, to discover his presence in the midst of it. And I would say for you that kind of feel that weight and feel a sense of like despair. Take that yoke off you and just spend some time in the presence of the one who loves you and gave himself to you. What I would suggest is that in that context, don't even try to do anything that Jesus is trying to tell you to do right now. Hold on to that. He will, in time, you will be able to walk into that. In time, he will give you the muscle and the strength and the ability and the energy to be able to enter into that and to be able to live that in accordance to his own good purposes. But in the moment, maybe the most important thing for you is to just soak and sit 
in the love that he has for you, that you would see yourself as the one that he is serving. He has picked up your slack, your weight, your brokenness, your soiling, your sin upon himself. He has borne our pain into his own flesh. And he has done this for someone that's nothing like him. And yet because of his profound love for you, that's why he's done this. And I find that as you sit and soak in that, what that will do is it will reshape your heart from being one that's full of cynicism or pain or only defined by trauma or agony or grief or loss. And it begin to give you this profound sense of God's presence, his acceptance, his love for something you never did.